Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about labor. So Lisa, we have done an episode about work in the past, season one actually. So one of our earliest episodes. And we talked a lot about Lean In specifically in a lot of the culture around work, like office culture. But I think we both want to dive more into the actual experience of doing work. So what do you think of as labor as opposed to work? So I'm interested in labor, but I'm interested in how it's organized, right? I mean, I come from a steel family um, in Northeastern Ohio. So like all of the men (laughs) on my father's side all worked as bricklayers or manufacturers in the steel plants. So that's sort of like, my grounding in labor is how do we organize labor? How is it organized for us? How are we forced to organize labor? And I think today is a really good time to talk about labor because we're watching the John Deere strike sort of unfold, the Hollywood production workers, right? We're very close to a strike. Um, And I think, as I've talked about on a previous episode, we're in the middle of what I think is a wildcat strike in the South, right? We have right, quote unquote, right to work laws. And so there are a lot of people, and especially in the service industry, who are refusing to work or to come back for shitty wages. But also there are a lot of people retiring early because they don't want to work under the conditions that have been produced by late capital, but also COVID. So I think this is a really interesting time to think about labor as an organizing practice of our day-to-day lives and how we are prevented from organizing ourselves around labor, how we're prevented from thinking about ourselves as laborers or as workers. And I think thinking through what we should be doing to organize our labor. So for me, like the big distinction with labor and work is that so much labor is unpaid. So this gets into some of like what people are not returning to work for, because like in the service industry, there's like emotional labor that happens while you're at work that isn't compensated necessarily. And a a lot of the people not returning to the workforce are women because they've had to reallocate their labor Mm -hmm. to childcare. So a lot of the reads on the current labor shortages, they don't really read the full situation. It's like people are just lazy. They don't want to work, but actually there's, a group of people that left the workforce because of childcare. And I think, you know, it's like, have you tried, you know, offering childcare services? Have you tried offering health insurance? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things that are now like a requirement for people to return to the workforce. Yeah. I mean, uh, the blaming the victim stuff, I think is trash discourse um, around labor because really the corporations just don't want to pay more. So let's just be honest about that, right? And in order to get what people really need to create productive, fulfilling, you know, happy lives where they have care, they need benefits, they need, you know, stable um, wages, living wages, they need childcare, they need 
access to functioning healthcare system. And those are all pretty much in short supply. So, you know, I think that the labor moment is for sure sexist, but it always has been um, and super racist, right? Because even with the unemployment numbers being as low as they are hovering as they continue to be around 4%, it doesn't really get to the fact that a lot of those, you know, low wage workers are working more than one job. Um, and it doesn't get to the leaky pipelines that you were just talking about. It doesn't get to the erosion and war on um, workers' unions or tenure or any of the other safeguards that have been so tenuous but are so essential for creating a stable economy. And, you know, I don't know how invested I am in a stable economy for its own sake, obviously, but I think in terms of producing a more equitable public culture, um, a stable economy means stable, meaningful work for the laborers in, you know, the country that we're speaking of. So I think you're right that, you know, <laughs> it's, it's artificial. The idea that there is a worker shortage is an artificial thing. I would also say like almost a million people have died from COVID. Like they used to have jobs. Now they are not working. So the idea that somehow just magically people are foot dragging or quitting absent all these other factors is i think a garbage take yeah i think what's happening also exposes kind of the machinations of how corporations have been controlling labor and the conversation around labor uh for decades like uh, it exposes that wages have been artificially low so the fact that so many people have been quitting their jobs because they have the choice to do so has really shown that wages have been artificially low. Like it's not a competitive market because people don't have the option to leave their jobs. And when they do have the option to leave shitty jobs, they take it. So I think it's kind of exposed that people have been unhappy at their jobs for a long time and they just haven't had the option to leave because they're living paycheck to paycheck companies have started introducing things like NDAs where you can't leave mm-hmm. and go to a competitive company for six months, I think is kind of the standard. So there are all of these restrictions in place, like low wages being the primary one that have prevented people from making the choices that they need to make, which is why, you know, I've enjoyed the conversation about universal basic income entering, uh, you know, the conversation. I love the ch- child care tax credit. To me, I think when people have more disposable income or when they have like something to fall back on, like that drives wages up because employers have to be better employers to reduce turnover and wages have to go up because people can make the decision to leave and go somewhere else. So it hasn't been a competitive market. We talk about capitalism and like pariahs capitalism, but the labor market for a long time hasn't been an efficient market. There's no invisible hand. There's a boot. That's... Well, I mean, you know, that's right. And the federal minimum wage hasn't risen since 09, like at all. So you're right when you're saying that there's no competitive market. And I also think about like the birth of the gig economy and how that has been, I think, an interesting space to see the limits of capital. Right. Especially as it pertains to mobility, right, with Uber and Lyft, but also food service and COVID with Instacart. You know, there have that has exposed, I think, a lot about 
the underpay of quote unquote essential workers in a crisis, right? So like, yes, you're essential. We're going to vaccinate you so you can continue to like shovel all the shit of capital, but we're not going to support you or your families. And we're not going to pay you a living wage and we're not going to provide childcare and you don't have access to healthcare or retirement or pension or whatever. And so I think that in some ways is a extension of Occupy Wall Street and the birth of the 1% as a meme for understanding the grueling crush of labor inequality in the United States. And we're seeing that on top of, you know, uh, heightened awareness about police brutality and, you know, segregation and racial profiling and lack of diversity in workplaces. Um, And it's all sort of coming to a head, I think, around um, a larger conversation about what kind of capitalism we're in transition toward. And I mean, the Fortune 500 companies are thinking this way. They're trying to think through it, um, some more successfully than others. But I don't know how much, you know, the average American is thinking that we're in a transitional moment for capital. I mean, it's hard to trust that we're in a transitional moment because most workers are used to being exploited. Right. So oh, the exploitation <laughs> isn't going to change. It's just whether we're on the, you know, precipice of collapse. <laughs> it's not like we're transitioning to something necessarily utopian or better. Right. Yeah. It's not like they're going to necessarily reinvent themselves into more progressive exploiters. Although I suppose that's a possibility. The question is, like, is the healthcare system going to collapse yeah. under a fifth wave of COVID? Right. What are we going to do about the fact that teachers are not going to come into the classroom? And so everybody's understaffed because they don't want to be exposed to COVID and they are not protected by their you know, superintendents mm-hmm. or their school boards or their state legislatures. The problem is one of, you know, what about the birth dearth? We're not people are not having children. Right. So by 2025, there's going to be a massive drop off. Who's going to take care of us and who is going to, you know, <laughs> Who's going to do the labor? Like, these are all looming questions. They're like right here. And I think you're right. Everybody's just like head down, trying to get their Skrilla and trying to make ends meet. And they can't, they can't see that, that things are actually fundamentally changing. I mean, part of that is the rhetoric around labor, right? Part of it's the gaslighting, which is, you know, what we discussed before. Like the narrative is that people who aren't returning to the workforce are just lazy. Not that the job's need to fundamentally change that's what competition is that's what capitalism is you have to change to compete and if you can't attract workers you have to adjust but also you know the gaslighting around like immigration the blame has been displaced for a long time on like what's actually to blame for the poor working conditions and the lack of opportunities so you know it it makes me mad when I hear companies say that they have trouble hiring because, you know, there's a lack of qualified talent, you know, I'm like, have you funded a scholarship? Have you done paid internships? Invest in training. Like I'm tired of hearing that there's just not enough qualified applicants. Like the workforce is the problem. We have to fundamentally change how organizations work. It's been extractive for so long. Like it's been a take, take, take situation where they expect public resources to be available to them at no cost. But there are costs to doing business and having a productive 
and valued workforce that benefits the company instead of resents the company and is there because they don't have better options available to them. I mean, the other side of that, though, is like the uber wealth. I was out with uh, my kid and a couple of her gal pals before the pandemic, and we drove um, to the park and there was this huge house and the girls were like, that house is so awesome. And I said, how many chimneys do you see? And they're like, six chimneys. Why do you ask? And they're, you know, they're pretty Christian. And I said, do you think that it's reasonable to have more than one chimney? Is it greed? Is greed sin? You know, we had like this big, long conversation about wealth and greed and hoarding and mass consumption. And I also think that that narrative is busted and needs to change. Like somehow it's okay to exploit all these workers and like, I don't, I can't even comprehend how the narrative about like the inventor or the male genius continues to circulate. Cause I just find it so laughable. Like whether it's Shatner being shot up into space or Elon Musk or whatever jackhole of the day who gets to spend gazillions of dollars, just, you know, fracking that time away from legitimate science or from public works or public utilities or whatever. And so you know, I do think that we're in a moment where it, where we're on the tipping point about whether or not the resentment will continue to cascade into labor action or whether it will be internalized as the gaslighting and self-loathing and right short circuiting of progressive labor activism. Um, you know, obviously I'm an academic, so watching the revocation of tenure in Georgia has been interesting and completely unsurprising because, you know, the teachers unions for K through 12 are one of the only unions that are primarily made up of women and higher ed has shifted to a feminized workforce in the last 10 years. So it's no surprise that the attacks on higher ed are going to go for tenure because that's the protection that guarantees the wages for a lot of the most educated women in the country. And so, you know, the, and also it's not a surprise that it's happening in the middle of this giant race conversation about critical race theory and DEI work and, and just the massive, you know, discrimination and segregation of people of color in the country, but especially black folks. So, you know, in some ways this is a very predictable thing and other for people who think about this a lot. But on the other hand, I just I don't think that there's a large scale picture. And obviously the media is failing to talk about labor at all. Right. So like the first thing I did this morning was like surf scroll through my feeds because obviously my algorithm should feed me all of the <laughs> labor progressive stuff. It was just like radio silence. So I had to go seek it out behind the paywalls. So that is also, I think, a key to the puzzle is like there is a disincentive for media outlets to demystify labor practices, labor policy and progressive labor organizing. And that's always been there. Right. So that's a fundamental piece of the, you know, whiteness and elitism of legacy journalism. But I think it's not incidental. It's it's central to the lack of understanding about immigration. It's central to not understanding, you know, how exploitation fundamentally um, shapes the economy and our economic practices, just even in the daily day to day lives. It, it's interesting to think about why the media doesn't cover labor and why, like, they all come from Harvard. Every single journalist that you flip to and that gets bumped in your feed 
comes from Ivy League schools and they don't have an understanding of labor. They like, they don't have it. Like you can't talk, they are not labor historians. They've never covered labor in a serious way. They don't come from places where labor matters in the same way. They are the extractors, the entire class of journalists that create the national news without, to almost an exact T, comes from the institutions that are benefiting from the exploitation of labor. <laughs> no, um, that's exactly right. <laughs> the control that corporations have over what their employees can and cannot say is immense. I mean, they've created an entire enterprise of HR as a shill, you know. Oh yeah, it's a liability <laughs> shield for sure. Yeah. Exclusively. So, so there's, I want to talk about like how corporations have created like a legal cover, you know, for exploitation and have made it impossible for employees to take any kind of action or speak to the press. COVID was kind of the first time that we heard any kind of whistleblowing within corporations, like hearing about Tyson executives, for example, making bets on how long it would take employees to get COVID or... Yeah, or Theranos or Facebook. I mean, it's been a while since it hasn't been the Department of Defense, right? It's where it hasn't been military secrets. So the swing back to private corporations is a very interesting turn, I think. Um, but the story is longer than that, right? So anything that whiffs of labor progressivism has been demonized as socialist much since the 20s. So that has provided an entire, especially for the Cold War, was an entire frame to discredit labor organizing um, really quickly through just like, you know, demonization and nonsense, and, you know, jingoistic patriotism. But I do think that that's changing, right? So the communist frame no longer works. And I think people have different relationships to labor now because of the gig economy and a whole bunch of other demographic changes in the country since the Cold War ended. And they have access to different kinds of media. And obviously that has been pretty terrible for like vaccination rates. But for the people who want to know more about labor, there is more labor information available now than ever before. And I do think that that, that Occupy Wall Street has changed the circulation of that, uh, certainly within uh, the left, but, you know, even I think it's seeping into liberal discourse. So, you know, that is not so bad. It could be better. But the media play a huge gatekeeping role in keeping that conversation out of the headlines, which is garbage, right? Because people would really actually prefer to talk about wages and they would prefer to talk about FMLA and they would prefer to talk about child care and maternity. And, you know, this moment that we're in right now where the conservative men are like shitting on FMLA, it's like how to tell somebody you're a shitty parent without telling them you're a shitty parent. But also it's a thing about futurism and children. Like nobody wants to talk about the care of children or how to build futures for them or how to guarantee a certain kind of future for them. And the fact that children have dropped out of the discourse, like during the Trump administration, obviously, because he's so anti-child, I think is a canary in the coal mine for how people are unable and unwilling to participate in futurist discourse that doesn't just replicate their immediate circumstances. So that's a skill set to think about the future differently than the present. And we do not have it as a culture, but the disappearance of the child from the horizon of the way that we talk about politics, I think is a real signal that things are hor horribly awry. I mean, I also think giving legal power to employees 
is the next step forward too. Companies won't change unless they're incentivized to. And the threat of legal action by actual employees within the organization has been not a threat for a number of reasons, including low wages, including NDAs, including cultural brainwashing. Um, So I think giving some sort of legal power or some kind of recourse where employees can actually take legal action when their employers aren't, one, adhering to basic safety and well-being standards, but also to pursue action for things like FMLA and you know, I think that's right. I'm thinking a lot about how terrible uh, the universities have done in the COVID moment by just gutting, basically, de facto gutting the ADA, right? Because they're not accommodating people who have disabilities, despite the fact that, like, the Biden administration has said long, long haul COVID is a disability, which, of course, it has to be. I mean, it's, it is debilitating for millions of people. So that I also think is a terrain where there is an opportunity to expand the discourse on disability access, right? Um, In a lot of spaces, not just higher ed, but that's a labor terrain. That's something that unions can do and that individuals can't. So that's part of, so the decline of collective organizing has prevented employees from being able to take legal action. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true that the terrain of organizing unions has has really declined, but also the union, unions themselves have failed to meet the challenges of the moment. So they continue to use the same models. They continue to, you know, prioritize nepotism. A bunch of them are really corrupt. They continue to be, in many cases, dominated by men. It's not like there's childcare on site, right? They continue to replicate the same shitty problems they've had since the mid middle of the 20th century. And that is not compelling people to join unions. So also unions need to be better and suck less because they are not, you know, they are not doing well. And I mean that just like generally, like there's some that have been great. Like the airlines, I mean, have continued to be pretty much the gold standard, right? AFT has certainly pushed to, um, and the AEA to, or NEA have pushed to, um, revamp student loans, that's going to change an entire generation of people's lives, even if every single penny of their student loans is not forgiven. The fact that they paused it for two years created so much flexible capital for people who had student loans. Now, of course, granted, those are mostly white educated people, but wiping out debt from bogus universities, good, right? Um, giving, allowing universities to use CARES money, to pay off the student loans of their students, good. I mean, so there is, I think, a vibrant labor scene happening. It is just not the center of organized labor in America. So for for that to to improve, I think, local unions really have got to reimagine themselves. But it is one of the pitfalls about unions is that they keep their members forever. There's no incentive to really do the dynamic kinds of change that, you know, a market on the verge of transformation needs. Think about collective organizing and the power that it can give 
employees in the current moment where the courts have been so politicized because most of the rights that workers still have are basically what is enforced by law. Those are it. And the only way I can think about things getting better is through the legal system, you know? And it's weird to think about like that being the only option in this moment where unions aren't thinking progressively about um, organizing politically with the courts in mind and when the courts have become so politicized. Certainly the Supreme Court has lost for probably a generation, if not two. We'll see how much Biden is able to make room in the judiciary for at least a surge of liberalism. It won't be right, left. But I think the bigger problem is that local unions often default to a really narrow idea that they exist inside of their own workplace. So I think it's a limited vision that is constraining them and an inability to collaborate across fields, right? And that they only consider, you know, the purview of the union, like what's happening internally to their organization. So I would like to see those unions share labor and, you know, think more about a, you know, labor movement. What what does it mean to build a new labor movement? Because Occupy was a labor movement. You know, it was about a offering a critical take on hedge funds and debt bundling and the shift from pensions to 401ks and risk you know, how America views assets as financial, but not human, insofar as they do see the human, you know, their humanity and the assets it's to exploit. So I think that sharing the vision and, and thinking through collective action beyond the organization's union is like essential. And it, it helps to kind of if not prevent, at least moderate the toxicity that happens as a result of the hypermasculinity and whiteness that has come to dominate, you know, a lot of union scenes outside of the ones that continue to be feminized. So I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Amazon, right? Especially given the hype around their plant in um, Alabama, like to see if Amazon workers are a space. I think it'd be interesting to see inside of Walmart to see if there is space there. In some ways, you know, I think it's more likely in Amazon because the Walmart conception of corporation as family is very different than the Amazon exploitation model. And so the relationship to capital is very different, generationally different in those Mm -hmm. two corporations. But I do think that they are spaces for transformation. And, you know, since we're in Arkansas, I guess I would prefer to see Walmart lead the way on labor issues because they are like a hometown business and they provide groceries for the majority of rural communities in the country. It's hard to think about businesses taking that step because, you know, with the organizing movement within Amazon and also just the widespread knowledge that it's a brutal place to work and often abusive place to work. Mm -hmm. uh, It hasn't cut into their profit margins. (laughs) You know, uh, they're having stronger and stronger earnings reports. Ditto for Walmart, given that there are complaints about uh, worker rights there. 
I hear that, but also I think that the strikes that are happening right now, whether they're wildcat or formal strikes, are radicalizing the whole generation of climate activists who see the relationship between like labor and the climate as a new terrain of struggle that is reframing like the futurism, temporality, their feelings about, you know, the importance of their labor and the meaning of their labor, but also the meaning of their protest. So I actually think that the frame for labor insofar as it is attached to climate change has a very different like event horizon, has a very different magnetism. I think it has a lot of potential to catalyze different relationships to labor, but also to work um, in ways that we haven't seen. So, you know, I do think that in those large mega corporations, the possibility for eco-social change is more vibrant now than perhaps before. Now, whether that translates into total transformation, obviously I'm not optimistic, but the potential exists to change the relation between the workers and the wealthy. I love that you said that because when I was talking about like what penalty does Amazon or Walmart have for their treatment of employees, I was thinking of it from the standpoint of at what point do you lose consumers? I like that. I I, I think labor is the force of change, yes. you know, not consumers. And it's been framed that way for so long because labor has been powerless. Like it's hard to even imagine uh, a future where labor has control through strikes, through organizing, through like But this is young the moment people. where it's yeah. defined that way because people are refusing to work. Yep. And they're not defining it as a labor movement, right? So the fact that that frame is missing is very interesting because it, that means that there's an opportunity to, to frame it and to take the frame. Because I don't think that the, you know, the workers are lazy narrative is playing. It's just repeat. I mean, they're just beating that drum, but it's not a serious thing. Nobody's internalizing that as a serious thing. And also, I, I really fundamentally feel that the way that we respond in this moment, especially by withholding labor, will be transformative regardless of whether that transformation absolutely radicalizes capital in some lefty way. I think that the withholding of labor now is what will produce tangible wins in the future, regardless of whether it's organized as a legible, you know, universal labor strike or not. Right. So like in a micro sense, I'm not writing a bunch of journal articles ever again. Why? I don't need to, it's more important for the younger people to get tenure, so they should have those journal pages, right? So I'm withholding that particular labor to make space for other people to, to have job stability. And I think that given how much time people have had, especially white intellectual workers, knowledge workers, right, to sit at home in COVID, they have actually come to totally different conclusions about the lives that they want to lead. And there is a way in which COVID has given them a new perspective on their life that has radically reshaped what work and, and meaningful work mean to them. And although that that is not translating into like some universal truth for the country, right? Because I'm talking about a specific subset of workers with a particular asset, you know, ratio, it does mean that they are in a position. There's going to be a point where you can't just blame wage workers, where the middle class, what's left of it, the tech workers, right? The knowledge producers, the intellectual capital says, fuck this. 
we're not doing this. We shouldn't do it this way. We're not doing it this way. And they're going to be the ones that have to shift some of it too and take responsibility for what they have consumed and the kind of labor dynamics that they have put up with and circulated. And that is not nothing. <laughs>